For our series of the ADC's competition talks with leading experts, we have today Dr. Pierre Regibault, Chief Economist at DG Competition at the European Commission. Previously, Pierre was Vice President at CRA, as well as an Honorary Professor at the University of Essex. Pierre has a PhD in economics from Berkeley and has held teaching positions at the MIT, at Northwestern University, the University of Barcelona and INSEAD. Pierre, always a pleasure to talk to you and truly delighted to be able to do it for the ABC's Comcast series this time. Now, the timing for this podcast couldn't be a better one, as just a few hours ago, the Commission presented this proposal for a Digital Markets Act. Now, Pierre, it's now been a little over a year that you took upon the role of Chief Economist at Digicom. So, looking back at the cases that you have dealt with and the insights that I, I must imagine have surrounded the discussions preceding the announcement of the DMA today, What do you think are the biggest challenges that competition policy in the digital space pose to enforcers? Are they methodological? Are they more, they more policy related? Where do the key difficulties uh, lie? Uh, maybe I'll be provocative and say the greatest difficulties are sometimes the work of, of the parties. And uh, I'll develop this around two lines. Clearly one of the difficulties has been the COVID. Right, it's itself a challenge for two reasons. First, for organizational purpose, but also because yes, it legitimately kind of can create uh, different scenarios, especially in terms of state aids, but even in terms of mergers with failing firm defenses, uh, or in terms of allowing you know crisis cartels and so on. So yes, clearly there is uh, room for saying yes, we should do things a bit differently. But then it, has not, it doesn't help where every party then start arguing that their case has completely changed because of COVID. And frankly, I don't think this is something that helps anybody. Same thing about what you know is something I care about, not that I've come you know, with an agent that's the problem, but something I care about is the issue of efficiencies. I care about not only within the care case, uh, the scope of mergers, but also in terms of antitrust. And I think that We should take efficiencies in mergers seriously, and we'll come back to this later when, if we talk about out-of-market efficiencies. We also should take them seriously in terms of antitrust. And let me explain. In terms of antitrust, as you know, it's very often the case that if you start about a theory of um, based on foreclosure, on some kind of tying, the parties immediately kind of take the local parent and say one monopoly profit, right? And then they sit back and say, well, it's your turn. I don't think it's my turn. When you've said one monopoly profit, you've just given me a textbook benchmark that has absolutely no chance of being satisfied uh, in a real life context. So at that point, I want to hear about your efficiencies, not, oh, you cannot say it's not one monopoly profit, therefore it must be efficient. So that's what I mean, taking efficiency seriously in antitrust. And that, of course, goes against the party's usual practice. On the other hand, within mergers, my concern about efficiencies should help the parties. While the commission has always looked at efficiencies and sometimes has looked at it very seriously, clearly they haven't played the role that they should in most mergers. And part of the reason, of course, is that it's hard for the commission to just do the job on its own for efficiencies, because clearly the parties tend to be the one who have the best information. And I think we've been in a bad equilibrium where the parties have thought, oh, 
if we start talking about efficiencies, it means that we think we have a bad case otherwise. My answer about, as an economist is that in terms of mergers, you start with a bad case because without efficiencies, well, it's not very easy to see an upside. Therefore, let's not play a charade. Give us your efficiencies and then we'll make sure to, you know, estimate them and take them into account kind of fairly. And then again, if you do not have cooperative parties who try to play legal games and so on, that doesn't make what I think is a necessary improvement that easy. So given that, would you expect efficiencies to be more uh, in the approach that you just prescribed, to be more often accounted for or not really so? Well, I'm trying in the sense that, you know, first, you know, I go systematically to the important state of place, oral hearing and so on, and I try to be interactive with the parties. I'm not trying saying, look, what are we planning to do now? You're planning to do A, B, C, D, F, G. A, B, C, D, frankly, don't waste your time. It's not going to change my mind. And I don't think it's going to help you legally. On the other hand, I think that the D, E, F, G could be uh, interesting. And let's talk a little bit about how to make it interesting. So that's the only thing I can do is try to kind of guide the parties to uh, terrains that might be uh, propitious for both sides. Well, indeed. Uh, so a double commitment on taking efficiencies seriously. Now, now let's uh, move a little bit to digital. And digital markets evolve fast, and so does the pace at which uh, we enforcers uh, must draw lessons from uh, enforcement in the digital uh, era. We need to do that fast too. Uh, now, this is a massive challenge uh, for enforcers, and there are some things that one can only improve by with learning by doing and experience. So given that, what lessons would you share with us regarding remedy design in the digital space, uh, building, for example, on the Commission's experience uh, with the Google antitrust cases? Well, I think that essentially there, there are two separate issues. One which is really very specific to the digital space, the other one which is somewhat specific. Let me start with the second one. And if you look at the remedies that have been imposed, both in uh, the Google Shopping case and the Android case, these were remedies that were forward-looking, as they were really trying to change things moving forward. They were not looking at potentially remedy harm that might have been done by the past use of some practices, right? For example, in the shopping case, you could, rightly or wrongly, say, okay, say we like the remedy you had going forward. A healthy Google, a healthy shopping uh, undertaking, compa price comparison site, under the new condition, should be able to do fine. Okay? But the problem that you haven't fixed is that now most of those undertakings are in such dire shape because of the past abuse that they cannot take advantage of this level playing field. They have a level playing field, but they've left with a single leg. So it doesn't, doesn't help them more. So one could discuss about whether we were strong enough about trying to remedy past harm. And I'm not going to express an opinion on that, if only also because I, at least briefly at the beginning, also worked on the Google's, uh, 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 on, on the site of some shopping comparison site on the Google Shopping case. So I'm conflicted, but one can ask that question. Okay? Same thing, you could also ask that question in the Android case. So after, have the remedies look backwards to remedy the potential harm enough? And I, I don't think the answer is obvious, okay? but that's that's one kind of criticism. And this is not really quite specific to the digital space. 
it's only the digital space being complex enough, evaluating the past harms that has been done might be a little bit harder than in other spaces. Now, the second one is to try to kind of future-proof things. And there, there are, of course, you know, the kind of laughable fail. That would be a fail where you design a remedy saying you've got to do this. And because algorithms are so flexible, well, the dominant firm just changes the algorithm. They say, oh, you didn't tell me. So you didn't tell me I couldn't do that. Or you just don't notice it. Okay? So you cannot tell me I didn't do this. I think we're getting wise to that. We have, you know, uh, lots of no, no avoidance avoiding no duplicating clauses and so on. One of the difficulties to find out what's going on. And from that point of view, having increased expertise, for example, with the development of digital regulator on whose expertise we could draw, can certainly only improve our ability to kind of design a remedies. You know, uh, you know that right now uh, there is an ongoing case, which is the Google Fitbit. And then, you know, some remedies have been offered. And I can guarantee you that some people with lots of specific expertise on data and so on are at this stage involved in trying to design and evaluate those remedies. So one is progressing on that count. But the second issue, I think, is the misperception of what the remedies are trying to achieve. The remedies in the Google Shopping case were never designed to make sure that the comparison shopping site would thrive. No, it would make sure they would have a a chance to thrive if they actually offered something significantly different or better than what Google can offer on its own. So just, you know, complaining, for example, that, you know, it's an auction system and they've got to pay something. Well, unless you're going to find a way of allowing 50 companies to have access to a Google box, which will be the end of Google boxes, that's one approach. You say, oh, the cost of re the level playing field is a deterioration of the consumer's experience, because let's face it, many consumers like to have a Google box. Or if you don't want to deteriorate the consumer experience and you set up for having sufficient compliance Competition, as we do, then we just make sure that enough arrival can have access to the Google box. And then you need a rational mechanism. And the kind of rational mechanism that is more fair is through an auction. Okay. So complaining about the fact that it's an auction, somebody has to pay something, especially now that we ensure that Google itself doesn't take part in the owner, uh, uh, is the auction for all of the slots, so cannot have strategic behavior, then I don't see the problem. If after that, the rivals don't thrive, well, unless they can point out to another conduct we haven't dealt with, I'm so sorry for them. And the market was not right for them. So that's my view. I do actually think that, except for the issue of monitoring that really requires expertise, in terms of designing remedies, I really don't see why we couldn't design effective remedies. Okay, so if I understand you well, Pierre, you're saying that it's that the remedies should ensure a fair shot for competitors, but not do market design because it can have a lot exactly. of pernicious effects also on, in the market. Good, but you've mentioned all the progress in terms of uh, the knowledge about these tools and about the markets. And can I ask you to what extent all these experience with these cases played a role in in lighting the way to the do's and don'ts uh, list that uh, the DMA announced? today envisages? Well, certainly, no, no, it was a joint process. So, of course, some of it came from DigiCom, some of it came from DigiConnect, other DGs like DigiGrow got involved. So, of course, it was an exchange of view. But yes, we did learn. For one thing, you would have noticed that some of the do's and don'ts concerned are related to some of the theory of ARM we have proposed kind of recently. So, that's, that, that, that clearly is not a coincidence. For example, the fact that we know 
that the issue of self-preference is actually quite subtle. It's probably partly by going through cases, partly responsible for the case, for the fact that you don't have a blanket a prohibition against self-preference. That are, you know, rankings, yes, some specific form of rankings, but a more general blanket uh, ban that might have been hired by some party early on in the process is not there. That certainly is also imputable to what we've learned through doing cases, yes. Very well. Now, more developments, fresh developments, other than the DMA, this time on the other side of the ocean. Last week, the FTC sued Facebook for illegally maintaining its personal social networking monopoly, a figure that we don't have, EU competition law. Now, but the FTC announced it, it is also seeking a permanent injunction that could entail, amongst other things, divestitures of assets, including from Instagram and WhatsApp, and uh, that it could require Facebook to seek prior notice and approval for future mergers. Now, the the decision is quite interesting and includes several emails revealing a great deal as to the incentives and the intent of Facebook when acquiring WhatsApp and Instagram, such as uh, the email from 2008 uh, Zuckerberg's email saying it is better to buy than compete. Now, I think this is very telling and I would like to hear your views on how you read these developments and what implications do you think this can uh, have for merger control? Okay. Well, first, let me say that I'm actually quite happy that the CFTC is going after Facebook on those two acquisitions, which in my book were clearly anti-competitive acquisition. And there is, of course, some reason maybe not to require notification of absolutely any acquisition, but certainly room for constant monitoring of acquisition in this market. Now, let me tell you what I base that on. It happens that quite recently, uh, actually, uh, for Margaret Vestager, the CT and mostly myself and Hans Enger, have spent some of our own time uh, looking at killer and what we called early acquisitions, right? Early acquisitions are those that are under the radar of the conventional thresholds. Killer acquisition are the one where essentially the acquisition would not take place if the motive to reduce competition was not a prominent and decisive mo uh, uh, motivation. And of course, there's also the reverse killer acquisition, where the motive there is to discontinue your own research or product line, another form of decreasing competition. Okay? And what we did, we looked both at some firm in the pharma industry and then at the GAFA, not GAFAM because we were lazy, so four was enough, in the digital industry. And we started by trying to have a list of all of the acquisitions since 2005. And for those to try when we could to get the price that was paid, to get the business of the company, the size, was it was a startup or not, also looked online, of course, at the trade press at the time to see whether it was perceived as mostly by the company for the for patents or mostly by the company to hire personnel, or whether there was kind of complementarities whether it was easy to find out where this acquisition was actually used by the platform, was it used in, you know, in Google Play and da-da-da-da-da-da, okay? Or whether there was already at the time of acquisition stories about modifiers noticed in the trade press, okay? So we did that. And I'm only going to concentrate on the four platforms. And first, what you find is that the four platforms are very different. For example, Google has done many more acquisitions than many others. You also find that across platforms, which maybe maybe not uh, Facebook, those acquisitions are clearly targeted. You know, you could have a period or we do acquisition in the cloud, or we do acquisition on social network, or we do acquisition on camera and photography, this kind of stuff. So they're clearly targeted. They're not random. 
Okay. You also find that most of them are startups. And how do I define startup? Very simply, you look again at the announcement of the merger at the time. And if I find an announcement where the firm is referred to as a startup, as good enough as a startup for me. And the range goes from about 82% of acquisition are startup for Google to something like 60% for Amazon. So that's one difference for Amazon. Amazon tends to acquire more mature company. So the first thing that you find out is that those companies have very kind of different strategies. Now, if you look at that and say, what could possibly have been a killer acquisition? You don't find much. And if you restrict yourself to say, look, actually exposed, do I think that I could have done anything? Then frankly, you don't find much that is more even remotely on the radar for companies like Google. You might, you know, even if you look at DoubleClick, we know that DoubleClick might have, got, might have gotten problematic because of the use that was made of it later or allegedly made of it later. But at the time, you know, there was some discussion and some commitments, but you could not have foreseen at the time that Google would become so big and potentially dominant in ad and so on. And that would potentially or allegedly kind of misbehave. So it's a case where, yes, it's maybe some unfortunate behavior, but there's a kind of behavior that is very well dealt with after the fact. There's no way you could have done it before. So I think on Google is not that much on my radar, at least. On Apple, frankly, there's almost nothing. There's maybe one recent acquisition that I'm not going to mention that might raise some questions, but there's really nothing that would keep us awake at night. On Facebook, however, yes, there are two that stand out, and that's WhatsApp and Instagram. And if you read the press at the time, it is there. It is there. They're buying up the competition. They're buying things because they could not beat those guys. And the market was very concentrated. So buying somebody you cannot beat, that's fine. If there are six, seven other uh alternative in the market, but if you buy the leaders, it's kind of all the only game in town. Frankly, that should have drawn attention, especially because those mergers were reviewed. So they were not under the radar. So I think, in my opinion at least, mistakes were made. And then what is interesting is that if you look at Amazon, at least in my book, and again, that's my own personal view, doesn't, that's not the view of the commission or anything like that, there are actually a, a greater number of things that kind of might raise an eyebrow now. You know, if you acquire, if you build a marketplace and then, you, you know, you acquire companies that have very significant stock of content or are number one as a marketplace in a specific sector or number one in a given geographic area, say, for example, the Middle East, and at the same time, you buy the corresponding logistics firm in the same area, you would think that at least that would have been looked at. And it was. So what it tells me is that, yes, some monitoring is required. Does it involve companies notifying the authority? Honestly, it's not that hard to follow regularly what those companies uh, kind of acquire. And the benefit of doing this is that you get yourself a better understanding of the strategy, a better understanding of the industry. So I'm not sure notification is required, but monitoring is not only required, but it's healthy because it makes it turns us into people who know a bit more about the industry. And in terms of getting to things that are below the threshold, first, it's not obvious how many of those have become problematic in the sector. And second, as you know, through the referral from a member state, we actually have a pretty good tool to do that. Very well, Pierre. Yeah.
very interesting insights on digital. But let's now uh, move on to green, uh, which is also another area which is challenging in terms of the tools, the scope. It gives a lot of food for thought in terms of competition policy. Now, so I would like to uh, wrap up this uh, podcast with a final question to you. If you could share your views on what kind of path do you think that a competition policy should take in terms of sustainability and what role do you think uh, there is for competition policy on that regard? Yeah, well, clearly competition policy is not the leading tool to hit green targets. And that's important because I think it tends to be there's a tendency for politicians to want to overuse it. And one of the reasons, of course, this is a less transparent tool. It's always convenient to use less transparent tool. Uh, the number one energy should probably be dealt with, be, uh, be, be applied to trying to get international agreement with actual commitments, not just promises. But that's not an excuse, of course, for competition policy not to do its part. And in terms of doing its part, it can certainly, as I've said elsewhere, get out of the way, make it clear that under existing rules, a whole bunch of pro-competitive green cooperation are allowed. If you have a cooperation on R&D with sufficient synergies that we are convinced under the horizontal rules that it would dominate the potential anti-competitive effect of of cooperating on an important competitive dimension, then you can do it, whether it's green or whether it's not green. On the other hand, are we going to let you do this kind of cooperation under conditions where it would be blocked for competitive concern just because they happen to be green? No. On that, so let's just make sure we're not blocking things the way people say, but on the other hand, we're not going to bend the rules for you. Now, there are other areas where we might be able to go farther than just clarifying things. And one clearly is state aid. And in terms of state aid, there are essentially kind of two things we can do. One possibility would be, could be, to be a bit more lenient for state aid schemes that kind of pursue green objectives. Now, unfortunately, the recent court decision in uh, Inkley Point does not necessarily make this easier. It certainly doesn't make it easier to say, oh, there's an overarching uh, competition objective as a starting point of the state aid analysis. That's consideration we might be able to bring it at the late end of the the analysis. But consistently biasing the analysis because it's green is not something that we would be able to do easily, even if we wanted to do that. Now, on the other hand, something that we can do is put special energy in helping states with green projects to find designs that are compatible with state aid law. Okay, so helping them very much doing things within the law. That's one thing we can do. Something else we can also do is change those schemes to make sure that they do not work against green objectives. And the the, uh, example I usually take is that many countries, Germany, others, have green taxation, for example. That can be subsidy, but green taxation on high uh, on energy. But of course, as a result, large energy users are very heavily penalized. And states don't always like that because they tend to be larger employers, and they might be employers at the risk of flight to another jurisdiction outside of the uh, of the EU if the tax burden is too high. And therefore, we ask to kind of grant exemptions. But if we grant exemption by saying, oh, those guys are only going to have to pay 20% of the taxes, it sure helps in keeping them happy and keeping them in the EU. But at the same time, it kind of destroys a lot of the effect of the green policy because these are precisely the big users, the big polluters. So why not push kind of more clever schemes that disassociates the compensation 
from the incentive effect. So you still pay your tax, your green tax is based on how much you, how much you consume. So you still have the incentive to consume less, to adopt cleaner technologies and so on. But you get a refund and this refund is a lump sum and the side of this lump sum is based, say, not on your consumption, but of consumption of other firms in the same industry with a similar, similar size. So the kind of trick we usually use in regulation when we want to dissociate payment from the incentive. Why don't we do this? That's, that's something we've already tried to do. And then we, I think we'll try to do more and more and uh, flag in the revision of the state guidelines. So, so that's just being kind of more clever about the way we do things. And then the last point is, I always push this. Uh, I'm not getting a, a payment for each PCI that we get. So that's what's European project of, project of uh, European importance, whatever. I never get the alphabet soup uh, uh, kind of right. But clearly we've already had projects on batteries. We might have one coming up on, hydro, uh, on hydrogen. Clearly, if we, we are con concerned that the EU is not innovating enough in uh, this sphere, that's a very good tool to use because it targets precisely projects that are not privately profitable because they generate their social, uh, but they are socially profitable because they generate so much externality that cannot be appropriated by the private sector. And then we make sure that they can get subsidy to partially fill this gap. That seems to be a, a good tool to me. Okay, yeah, so you leave us with some words of caution regarding enforcement and the role of green in enforcement. So some yellow lights on green. Yes, exactly. And you left us with some clever insights, which are basically industrial policy insights regarding green and state aid. Yeah, what an interesting conversation. You're always very straightforward and, and very clear in your answers. So it was a privilege to do this Comcast with you. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for having me. I always like to interact with your group.